Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. I'm Surbhi Gupta and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events and personalities from around the world. In India, young people seldom have the agency to choose their own partners. Marriages are usually arranged by families with multiple factors kept in mind. Class, caste, clan, religion, profession and physical appearances. Hence, there exists a dichotomy with what is known in India as a love marriage, where people dare to choose the partner on their own. While finding love has become acceptable and normal in the last few years because of pop culture and dating apps, there is still a taboo. Families just don't accept it. Just last week, a couple died by jumping in front of a moving train in Rajasthan because they had a love affair, the police said. Less than 10% choose their own partners in India. And this love becomes even more political when people decide to cross the boundaries of caste and religion. It is often accompanied by social ostracization and extreme violence in the form of honor killing, where couples are murdered by their own families. In the last few years, Hindu-Muslim couples have increasingly been targeted by Hindu right-wing vigilantes, who accuse Muslim men of love jihad, a conspiracy theory according to which they feign love to get Hindu women to convert to Islam. Several state governments have been introducing laws to criminalize such unions. Meanwhile, homosexuality was decriminalized in 2018, but social attitudes have not yet completely caught up. Same-sex marriage is not yet legal in India and is currently being debated in the Supreme Court. Indian journalist and writer Mansi Choksi writes about this political love in her debut book, The Newlyweds, where she tracks the trajectories of three couples in India, an intercaste, a Hindu-Muslim and a lesbian couple over the last five years. She has also investigated the works of Love Commandos, a volunteer group that was once hailed for providing shelter to such couples but eventually had its co-founder arrested for abuse and extortion. This investigation became the focus of the latest season of NPR's Rough Translations podcast, which she guest hosts along with creator Gregory Warner. Mansi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I would like to start with, you know, in India, we have two kinds of marriages, arranged and love. And I think love marriages have only been normalized in the last two decades, one could say. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't even know if they're really normalized yet. It's just, I think it's one of those fault lines that exposes a lot of the underlying forces that are shaping India. It's one of those fault lines like religion and, you know, politics. Love marriage is, you know, a political act in, in India even now. Why do you say that? So the traditional way of marriage in India is is arranged marriage, which means that it is a match arranged by a, a bride and a groom's family. Things such as caste, class, clan, language, region, community are taken into account when arranging such a marriage. And I think sociologically, this is a cherished observance because... This is a tool that is used to strengthen power hierarchies. India is a society where we derive our sense of identity from the groups that we belong to. We have a big emphasis on collective identities as opposed to like individual identities. 
and and everything about our daily lives and our politics are arranged around these groups and hierarchies. So arranged marriage is is one of those tools to cement those hierarchies. So if you marry, if you know an upper caste person marries another upper caste person, that consolidates power. And you know if an upper caste person marries a lower caste person, it it threatens that that same power hierarchy. So that is that is one that is the traditional way of marriage, and the other is love marriage, which is I think what people think of as marriage anywhere else in the world. Just marriage anywhere else is called love marriage in India, which means that a young person chooses their own partner. Often, when a young person chooses their own partner, they don't think about things like caste, community, language. Often we do because you know we're also raised in in like deep in these like sociological like environments where we learn a lot of things by just observing uh, people around us but but yeah i mean uh, uh, where those love marriages one place in in india where you know those power hierarchies do get threatened so yeah so love love marriage in india is marriage anywhere else in the world right but how much agency do you think people have in either of the scenarios like do do young people have agency in arranged marriages how much yeah absolutely i think they do you know there's a, there is an idea that you know we have a very like unnuanced ideas often of what an arranged marriage could look like now you know there's there's many tools available for people to like decide for themselves who they would like to marry so it's almost as if arranged marriage is another kind of like dating platform in india where instead of an app it's your parents introducing you to someone that could be potentially your uh, life partner so i think there is there is some amount of agency but of course like love marriage is is something that has the has has the true meaning of agency in it which is that you're you're choosing your a partner of your liking as opposed right. to choosing a partner of your liking within the confines of what your parents think is appropriate that's the difference right but you know i don't know, you must have seen this news earlier this month the chief minister of gujarat uh, said that you know they're kind of examining if an a system could be implemented where you know it mandates parental approval for love marriages and yeah. he used a phrase that was very striking at a time when parents are neglected in love marriages so you yeah. can talk more about what is the importance of parents and family yeah i mean you know often there's there's like there's a saying that goes back like several generations in india when we think about marriage it's not a arrangement between a couple but it's an arrangement between two families you know it's like it's a it's like a it's a trope that is constantly repeated in hindi movies you know in 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 families across the country this the the idea that you're not only choosing a partner but you're like choosing to like join a family with your birth family and and i think this kind of goes back and you know also the chief minister's comments i think all stem from this like idea of filial duty that we as indians feel towards our parents like you know we have I think one of the greatest boundaries apart from you know caste class religion etc in in India the greatest boundary is disappointing your parents you know we we really derive our our ideas of right and wrong and of a lot of like our our lives are so interdependent on our parents lives and you know of course this goes back to the the family structure the fact that you know rarely do young people kind of like after marriage separate and like live by themselves you know that there's just no culture um of like living by yourself in india it's it's frowned upon in 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 many parts of the country so yeah our lives are so intertwined with the 
the will and you know sort of opinions of our parents that that's that's probably where this comes from right and i think what really stood out to me even in your book was the survey you mentioned that there's only one third of young indians who believe in intercaste marriages right half of them are opposed to interreligious marriages they don't approve yeah. of dating before married right right and most of them like you said would want to take the permission of their families and then only 6% of us choose our own partners so are young indians not as progressive as we'd like to believe yeah i mean i think i think the this particular generation of young people is is unique in like many different ways one is that we're the first generation of people young people that grew up when the economy ha- was liberalizing we grew up when internet social media computers more you know became a daily household and for the first time we were the first generation of young people that were able to see how young people outside of india live and how a young like pop culture came to us you know when the economy liberalized it was a really mind blowing experience growing up in india you went from like having only doordarshan to watch to having like mtv and like all these other you know forms of pop culture kind of come straight into your home and and you know make you different in a way you know we we didn't have the like you know our parents were born you know with the burden of partition and all of that we're a very unique generation and and i think that this generation because of the way that because of the time at which we were born um i think there is this big push and pull factor of tradition and modernity that is you know gnawing at us and love marriage is one of those fault lines and i and and i i don't know if we're progressive or not it's just i i don't know if i think i think the the i think the answer to your question is that we're still figuring out what it means to be modern we're still figuring out how much of modernity is equal to tradition minus rebellion or tradition plus rebellion equals to modernity we don't know yet we're just like inventing our own for 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 the longest time like for our parents generation modernity meant anything that was anti indian so it was you know western was considered modern you know now we now we like have a more nuanced approach to it where where also you know we're not trying to look at our ideas of modernity in the binary of western and non western so yeah i think there's there are these conversations happening across the country and you know i think that young people in india are just trying to figure themselves out like anywhere else in the world i guess speaking about the different fault lines like caste religion also sexuality right yeah so I want to know what does digressing from them mean in India. The stakes are really varied, right? Like the stakes can be the stakes can be as little as disappointing your parents to honor killing. Like this, you know, it can you know it can take various shapes and forms. You know, things like I. But but the thing in my reporting, the thing that I have found is that. It is because we have such a internalized sense of what morality means that when young people choose their own partners there is a lot of them struggle with like emotions of guilt and regret and you know that's that's also one of the you know one of the fallouts of uh, making a, a choice like that you know indian children we're we're pretty duty bound in you know in in many ways like we're we're quite duties and you know have this idea of like you know filial piety and like you know you know often if young people that have chosen their own partners like the the kinds that like passed through the love commando shelter for instance 
they these are the kinds of young people that have probably never made a single decision for themselves in their life until taking the decision of running away they are young people who've been told what to wear what to study who to spend time with what to eat and then suddenly they are making this one massive decision of choosing a life partner risking everything they hold dear and running away and you know like landing up in a, a random shelter in new delhi it's just such a shift from their normal personalities it's not as if the couples that come to the love commando shelter are like rebels or like you know are you know have have been uh, are like difficult children or have had any any like uh you know disobeying their parents so i think a a big part of your answer is that they one one of the biggest and most common stakes is and like the the fallout the result consequences of choosing your own partner is is guilt and regret and you know and that kind of like overshadows a lot of the a lot of their like daily life after they've run away and settled down somewhere so you know when we watch bollywood movies they end at like a high note right where like a couple has has crossed a massive barrier they have come together and then you know it ends in, in it ends in, at a high but obviously in real life you know these people are are dealing with you know like what it means for this big grand love that they watched on the screen to really be reassigned into the smallness of daily life like they you know to 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 live with that the consequences of that decision knowing that you'll never speak to your parents again you'll never see your family again you'll never you know speak to friends and cousins who you grew up with it's just such a massive shift and change that it really takes a lot of it's it's a long process of like grieving and loss it's not always on a killings but i think most often it is this lo- long process of grief that comes with after that comes after uh, making this choice Right and one of my favorite lines in your book is that often when love is gained it can start to feel unheroic yeah the process of reconciliation with our choices can both be beautiful and terrible and i think what i loved about the book was it did not just talk about what these couples went through yeah it it really dwells a lot on you know what they did like the the you know the rising action but then also the yeah also the just the dullness of everyday life and dealing and dealing with the repercussions or just like the result or the reality of the choices they make exactly you know, that, absolutely absolutely you're so right that what i liked about it was that you did not just tell us what these couples go through to get married but also what married life is about that you know if they were regretting their choices questioning their choices so if you could tell me more about yeah. that Yeah yeah I I I think one third of this book dwells in this in this part of the story where you know they they're meant to kind of reacquaint themselves with their new lives you know meant to kind of like reckon with the choices that they've made so in the book for instance there's Neetu and Davinder and that is the intercaste couple in Haryana that run away land up at the love commando shelter and then you know she finds herself kind of like having fallen into the grip of her aunt-in-law who's you know who kind of takes it upon herself to train her to be a duteous uh, daughter-in-law so it's just like you know they've they've come from like one one system they've um, like rebelled against you know one idea and then they seek acceptance to come back into those same family structures and then you know there's there's chapter 2 of their lives which kind of is you know tainted with like guilt and regret with Arif and Monica you know 
it's the the hindu and muslim couple that get hunted by the hindu right wing they you know kind of move to another city he's working as a cop and you know she's uh, spending her days at home and in in this story you know there's just a deep sort of sadness that like follows monica everywhere she goes you know she has uh, you know they're back to being in touch with Arif's family but but monica you know has not spoken to anyone in her family so she feels that huge sense of loss and grief for not being in touch with her family and you know it's just it's yeah it's just honestly heartbreaking to to see that you know because he has moved on he's you know trying to like make a living he's trying to like make a living for them and you know she has all these like empty hours in her day that kind of just like fill with these haunting silences and then there's a third couple Rishma and Preeti they actually if you haven't read the book this is a spoiler they actually you know split at the end and Preeti chooses to enter a heteronormative marriage and you know she's in her life happy thinking about having a child and Rishma is you know out on her own um, still looking for love yeah so it's just you know this was this was reporting that like took place over a long period of time and i think that over the course of that time it was it was a really humbling and sobering experience to see how you know they had grown they had grown they had grown up they had grown weary they had grown cynical they had grown jaded and by the end of it you know they were they, you know when i met them they were they were these happy naive people and then by by the time that i i by the time they leave in the book there there's some other grown up versions of themselves so that was a really incredible opportunity to be able to you know to to be able to be let into their lives and to be given this kind of close intimate access it was it was really um i think a life changing experience for me um and how did you conceive the book actually the book began as a magazine story it began as a magazine story for harpers in it the whole thing began when i watched satyamev jayate you know the indian reality talk show in 2012 and i watched sanjay sachdev on it and i was like this is crazy that this exists like this sounds so cool i need to go and hang out with the love commandos and find out you know what they're about and by then they were actually written about everywhere world over you know they were written about in every major newspaper and press i was trying to find a way to like enter the story in like a unique way and then like many years went by i was living in new york at the time and i got a grant to go to sri lanka um for another article and i said that well i'm i'm like in in the neighborhood so i can like just go to delhi see what they're about and try to pitch the story so i did that i spent a week with them and then i pitched it to harpers and that honestly that's how it began and then i i returned to do more reporting and uh, yeah from that grew the book and then from the book grew the podcast so it's been a long <laughs> Journey. Yeah so love command is also very interesting that you know like initially hailed for protecting and celebrating yeah. that rebellious yeah. love right but that but Sanjay Sachdeva who is the co-founder is now in prison for extortion so yeah no he's actually out more, he's he's out he's out and it's up and running again okay but but if you could tell us more about the work that love commandos and he has done Yeah and 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 more about what you found out in your uh, reporting. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so the Love Commandos um you know they they call themselves do they call themselves they they're a, they're a vigilante group that you know basically Sachdev was Sanjay Sachdev is like a man in his mid 50s you know when you look at him he looks like disheveled he he wears a you know a Nehruvian handspun 
kurta and jacket most times you know he's chain smoking and you know he just seems like yeah this 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 is an image that you know is uh, this is an image that conjures such thing he started his career as a, a railway spokesperson and then he was a hindi speaking he was a hindi journalist in the 2000s when valentine's day would come the shiv sainiks the hindu right wing vigilantes in delhi would go from parks and would go to parks and colleges and start harassing couples that were spending time together because they wanted to protest the western corruption of indian values and such save at that time who was reporting the story realized that this is a grave injustice and that something should be done to protect the rights of young lovers in india so he created this organization called the indian peace commandos and he would just you know kind of become active in just become active around valentine's day and just like fight back any any you know right wing worker that was uh, harassing couples and then one day he was sitting at the delhi press club with his friends and he you know someone said okay you guys do such great work why don't you like make this a mission and by then sachdev had tried his hand at a couple of different businesses you know he started a milk uh, a flavored milk factory a car parts factory and he just nothing was clicking so so then he you know hits up an old friend and they start the the love commandos and they give us this catchy name and it begins you know the midday or you know some newspaper writes about it the next day and it's on you know whatever it's modest and then he appears on satyameev jayanti which is i think a good equivalent to explain it to you know non indian listeners would be that it's you know india's version of oprah it's a big massive platform so he is featured then in an episode about intolerance towards love and you know he comes in he's a very charming personality he is someone who can you know he's he's quoting hindu poetry on one hand and you know like sort of like find you know quoting a supreme court judgment on another he's just like really erudite and intellectual and really good spokesperson and very charming too so you see that and he has a massive tv presence and you know you can see the the audience kind of like burst into applause so that's where his rise really began so when after he appeared on satyameev jayate his phone just would like would not stop ringing off the hook and he would have couples coming in and out he got a lot of like media attention after that i think every major newspaper i think bbc did a documentary on him there's a documentary about him on amazon prime it's just he was everywhere and at the time what happened is yeah he was yeah he was basically everywhere and yeah he just started getting a lot of interest and uh, and and at that point he also started getting interest from western donors so there was a swedish uh, clothing company that was you know that that made a big donation shadi.com gave him a bunch of money as part of the csr initiatives and yeah he was just he was blowing up and he was making a lot of money and when by the time i got to him in 2016 he had been written about pretty much everywhere and they were all glowing stories as i started spending more time with them you know i i i started to feel that you know something wasn't right and i kept returning and you know sachdev is the kind of man that is really savvy about access because he's a journalist himself so he knows what would interest or peak interest and then you know he kind of stonewalls you and i think that the the fact that if i hadn't kept on returning i probably would not have had a sense of where things were going so yeah i kept returning and slowly it started to emerge that he was not all that he you know was made out to be when i left the couple that i met there got in touch with me and then i got the full picture and then i returned to india and i wrote the harper's piece and then after that, lauren who was lauren freya the npr's international correspondent in india she was also reporting on that i think she began in 2016 if i'm not mistaken no 2016 was me she began in 2018 
and then yeah so she she was so she she started speaking to you know a bunch of people that had passed through the shelter as well and then when we came down to the podcast it was the for the first time that we were able to compare my reporting with Lauren's reporting and together we had so many interviews i think between us we had spoken to about 50 people i i don't i'm not sure about the exact number but we've spoken to a lot of people and a pattern had started to emerge but yeah you'll have to you'll have to hear the last episode to find out what really happens after the rough translation series i don't want to give that away yeah but but till now whatever we know it is so revealing that the lack of privacy the lack of agency that they yeah. have even at the shelter the harassment that they face right they don't have the documents they don't have they can't make their own decisions they yeah they escape like one oppressive system to just be stuck in another going back to honor killings you mentioned that you know we know that they're common in india but yeah. but that number is not really reflected in the official data or our mainstream right. media yeah and oftentimes they're also recorded as murders injuries kidnappings so we don't know the extent of it right right so we do get a sense of how this violence takes place both in your book and the podcast so could you tell us right. more about it like yeah. more about the nature of this violence So yeah honor killings is basically when the family of the the girl or the boy murders the child for marrying outside of you know whichever boundary of tradition they're crossing community class village clan etc and the thing with honor killing law in india is that there is no so far there is no specific piece of le- legislation to to deal with honor killings there is the, you know there there are a bunch of bills that are being debated in parliament but there isn't you know it isn't treated separately from murder often honor killings also just go underreported because you know they kind of shushed within the family and the culprits are family members but what about the role of the police like how much do they intervene or is it usually you know supposed to be a family matter and not you know yeah actually there are so. now provisions in place to make sure uh, often what happens is that when an honor crime is reported the police side with the with the family so like if for instance if if a couple is in danger and they bring themselves to the police station saying hi i'm in danger you know my family might try to kill me because i've chosen to marry this person even though i'm you know legally an adult and i this is my constitutional right to do so the cop will likely say what you're doing is wrong you should go back to your family and like not do this but their job is to actually uphold what the constitution and the indian penal code is telling them to do and not what these invisible ideas of tradition is expecting them to do but of course like cops are human beings and they're part of society so they do often side with the the the, the grieving family because they themselves feel that that is the right thing to do yeah but uh, so one of the honor killings bills actually made a note of this and and made a special clause to say that you know there should be accountability so if a couple comes if a couple finds themselves in danger and reports themselves to a police station the police must act in favor of that couple you know there was there was a clause because you know this is such a common practice that you know some kind of clause had to be put in and there's all kinds of violence there's violence like kidnapping torture you know physical assault also you know things like social ostracization and boycott like for instance a person that might harbor a love couple might be ostracized by the community in the manoj and babli case which was one of the honor killings that that inspired a lot of like legal action and you know a bunch of um, political discourse around the issue of honor killings 
what had happened is was that manoj and bubbly were you know two young lovers from a village in haryana belonging to the same clan or to the same gotra and when they ran away they actually reported themselves to the police got a, a protection order from the the court saying that 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 basically gave them an a police escort that would follow them everywhere and make make sure they're safe and what had happened is that the police escort went up to the end of the jurisdiction of his state and then they were left on their own and then they were kidnapped by the girl's family and they were brutally murdered their bodies were found dumped in you know gunny sacks in a village canal and it was a horrifying horrifying really chilling case that you know spurred a lot of public action on this issue and it was the first time that a cop panchayat leader was convicted but i think he was later acquitted in the case but also the role of cop panchayats which are like kangaroo or village councils in the north indian belt you know they're essentially groups of unelected upper caste men that issue dictates about social life and you know rules about upholding the caste system in um, you know large swaths of rural india their role was investigated in this honor killing so yeah there is you know and also honor killings is not just a rural phenomenon you'll also hear about it in you know big cities sadly that is the truth yeah right and though we've been hearing about honor killings for a while but i think now what also we've been hearing more and more about is and i think the most forbidden and punished union in india would be between the hindu and the muslim right yeah and you know we we often see like how right wing hindu vigilantes right groups are always on the lookout and especially if it's a hindu woman and a uh, right. muslim man yeah and uh, and love jihad is now what we also hear a lot about yeah. a conspiracy theory which accuses muslim men of feigning love to force uh, women to convert to islam right and uh, we've been seeing like most and more and more governments are now introducing laws right. basically criminalizing conversion and yeah. uh, such unions so If you could tell us more about the politics of Love Jihad and yeah. know, what you're reporting from on the ground has kind of right, uh, yeah, absolutely told you, um, told you about so, yeah. So Love Jihad as an idea was came about in the 1920s. In the 1920s in uh, Meerut, there were you know there were some pe- there was a periodical that basically issued these these images of how Muslims were were basically defiling. two symbols that were sacred in hinduism one was the cow and the other was the woman and even in in a book that was was it hegrevar or savarkar i'm not really sure but in one of the in one of the the books written by a prominent hindu right wing thought leader you know this idea that muslims are are taking away hindu women as as you know as a as an as part of a concerted thought out effort to convert them to islam and eventually outnumber the hindu population was introduced back then this is something that has like regained currency post 2014 when prime minister modi came to power and just this general wave of you know muscular hindu nationalism started to sweep across the country after the you know when in the year after modi came to power in 2014 we saw an uptick in not an uptick actually the invention of beef lynchings where muslim men were lynched to death and you know sort of like medieval bloodletting across the country on suspicion of eating beef um 
and then uh, and then alongside that was this idea of love jihad where you know at one point i think on twitter some hindu vigilante released a, a list of names of muslim men and hindu women in marriages and and you know uh, instructed workers to like go find them and hunt them down you know there were you know, these these like i i for instance i met a worker at you know one of the uh, right wing groups that you know gave me a pamphlet about the signs that hindu women were being tricked by muslim men for instance that they were they were imploring hindu communities to like not allow hindu women to you know to to go to college unattended to give, don't give them mobile phones don't let them wear jeans don't let them you know like don't let them go unchaperoned because you know muslim men are you know trying to lure them at these like schools and college campuses yeah just uh, this paranoia this absolute utter paranoia around the idea that hindu women are being taken away by muslim men is an invention that has harmed so many real ordinary lives like for instance i spent a long time in during the reporting of my book spending time with arif and monica who were exactly one of those couples that find themselves entangled in uh, a love jihad controversy they fall in love like any normal young couple does and you know a monica sister who also harbors feelings for for arif gets the idea that one way to get back at them is to tip off um, the local bajrang dal and let them know that this is a case of love jihad and then overnight things escalate and they find themselves you know fleeing from from town to town you know not knowing what to do with themselves and just being hunted essentially by an entire you know group of invisible enemies who who they don't even know they you know it's it's just ha- you know it takes them years and years to untether themselves from the that love jihad fallout and even now it's just such a sore issue that cuts deep for them you know right do you think it's like now people will be more like mindful or people are more mindful of these fault lines is it has I it ever oh so. i really hope so but i don't think so you know like i i mean that could just, we can we can hope for it but i really don't think so the way that things are going in india like the news is coming out of gurgaon you know the every day we're hearing about some like hate crime against you know a, a, a muslim who's just minding his own business it's just a really vicious religiously charged environment in the country right now and this is exactly what i think a lot of us were worrying about in 2014 when modi was coming to power and now we're like seeing the fruits of it so really yeah it's a really terrifying and honestly like tragic tragic uh, state of affairs right but moving on to that from another kind of marriage i would say it basically moving on to same sex marriages yeah. which is also yeah. a hot topic right now because they're not Uh, yet legal in india yeah but 18 couples approached the supreme court petitioning to legalize it homosexuality was crim- decriminalized in 2018 we've been seeing more representation of queer and gay communities in pop culture on social media but social attitudes haven't really changed you know even see the arguments from the government they say that you know these western decisions this western culture cannot be imposed and imported to india and marriage depends on those age old customs and rituals right. and practices so do you think like same sex marriages will be accepted in india like what is your reading from whatever your research reporting um... yeah you know for as long as time same sex marriages have existed in india even if they're not legally recognized 
you know, couples that, you know, exchange garlands in a temple and make a promise or a vow to each other, you know, circle a Hindu, uh, a holy fire in uh, a bedroom or in a living room with their loved ones. Just because marriage as an idea is so deeply ingrained in us where, you know, we, we seek that there's like, I guess, a sanctity that comes with this institution that we, we crave in most relationships. So marriage in among same-sex couples has you know been around forever. I think what is, I mean, I, I the, the thing is that when when the Supreme Court decriminalized homosexuality, that was that was one big win. But marriage equality is is something that is like, yeah, it's it 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 should have been done ages ago. And it is uh, a basic fundamental human right and a fundamental right for any citizen of India. And I, I just don't see why it's taking so long. It, you know, I know that like from my reporting, like had Reshma and Preeti been able to marry legally, it would have been a completely different story for them. I think this, you know, the, the, their, their, their relationship and their marriage, their, their relationship started coming apart because it started fraying because of the fact that it was not acknowledged in the eyes of others. And had it been legally acknowledged, the others would have had to, like the families would have had to sit up and take notice. I think especially for a society like India, marriage equality for same-sex couples would is, is just yeah, so critical and so key. Right, but what do you think are the social attitudes on the ground among people? Like, do you think even homosexuality, like, what are the, like, what is the, like, how do people view it? How do people perceive it? Uh, I think there is a lot of, there is, there is a, you know, a fair amount of social stigma still. Of course, there's a lot more acceptance than there was, say, in the 90s. But there is, it's not like, it's not an easy road to be an LGBT person in India. You know, you're constantly fighting, you know, we have these like ideas of what masculinity should look like, what a marriage, what a respectable relationship should look like. All these ideas really wear you down as a, um, as a LGBT person, but you're constantly, you're, you're fighting a battle at every stage. And yeah, of course, there is more acceptance today than there was 20 years ago, but it's, it's not, not nearly there. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. I was watching the latest season of Made in Heaven. Yeah, uh, I'm so sorry. I haven't had a chance to watch it at all. It's about a matchmaker, Tara, right? It's about two wedding planners organizing huh. weddings. Huh. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Within the circle. And I think one of the reasons the show was so critically acclaimed was how we could, we could learn about all these fault lines we've spoken about be it class, caste, religion, sexuality, also, you know, with issues of dowry, intimate partner violence, colorism. I think a good concluding question would be, how central are marriages to the Indian society? I mean, I have a line in my book where I say marriage is the only intended outcome of growing up in India. Like that's how it feels for a lot of us. Like you grow up only to get married. Like what else are you growing up for? I mean, this is your role in, you know, strengthening the power hierarchies we talked about right in the beginning of this episode, where this you're, you're a tool in, in bringing communities closer, consolidating power and keeping systems that allow us to live in equilibrium in place. That's, I mean, marriage is like 
marriage is a tool for for this sociological purpose and you know on a on a family level it's it's almost as if it's seen as a marker of success you know like finding the right match for your son or daughter is like your ultimate duty towards your child and you know and 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 not disobeying your parents choice for marriage is possibly the ultimate disrespect that you can have towards your parents manzi choksi thank you very much of course thank you so so much thank you for having me this has been the lead the new lines magazine podcast you can find manzi on twitter at manzi_choksi and buy her book the newlyweds in all good bookshops you can also listen to her on npr's rough translations wherever you listen to podcasts this week's episode was produced by joshua martin and hosted by me surbhi gupta for more like this subscribe to the lead on your favorite podcast app or visit our website newlinesmag.com thank you all for joining